In your name we pray. Amen. Bring it, brother. Well, when he said the Whitfield of Georgia, Richard Barcellus immediately moved away from me and said, you're Anglican? <laughs> Clearly a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> so if you would, let's open up God's word to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to consider what I'm calling persevering with assurance. And interestingly, the themes in this exposition of Romans 6 will tie in the larger themes of both chapters 18 and 19 from the Second London Confession. Let's start... In verse 20 of Romans 5, and then we'll read all the way to verse 14 of Romans 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's go to our Lord once more. 
Our holy, eternal Father, we thank you for this moment in time that was already written in your book before it ever existed. We thank you, Lord, for every step you've established here. And now for this time, Lord, that we open your holy scriptures to hear them proclaimed, we earnestly pray that both the proclamation of your word and the hearing thereof will not be in vain. But we trust the Holy Spirit to accompany the delivery of your word through teaching and preaching and the receiving of your word. Asking, Lord, that by the convincing power of the blessed Spirit, that there will be in this hour a greater work of sanctification in the hearts of your saints. And further, Lord, we pray that if there are any here that are without Christ, we trust in you and plead earnestly with you, Lord. May today be the day of their salvation. For the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord, by his merits, through his mediation, in his name, we ask these things. Amen. When it comes to living the Christian life, there is perhaps no passage in the Word of God more foundational than Romans chapter 6. One reason for this is due to the fact that this chapter faces head on the danger of antinomianism. Antinomianism is a compound word that means against law. And it was originally coined by Martin Luther to describe the teaching of one of his contemporaries, a man named Johann Agricola. Its basic tenet is that since a Christian is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law, then God's law in its entirety is null and void in its application to the believer. Sadly, the outworking of this teaching has been, in many circles, a denial of the Christian's responsibility to pursue holiness. At least this is true for those described as practical antinomians as opposed to the merely theoretical or doctrinal antinomians. But whether practical or theoretical, antinomianism denies God's moral law as a rule of life, which is why Luther scorned it as a blasphemous impiety. Yet since there is nothing new under the sun, the concept of antinomianism before it received Luther's tag was apparently a grave temptation in the apostolic era. So when those in the early church heard Paul the apostle declare that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, some of them took this statement as a license to sin more in order to increase more grace. And it's to this self-deception which Paul confronts and exposes in Romans 6 by showing conclusively that a Christian can no longer live in sin since he has died to sin. In fact, the grace of God has liberated the Christian from sin, not to sin. And there's no portion of God's Word which settles this truth more emphatically in the face of antinomianism than Romans chapter 6. 
Another reason, however, that Romans 6 is so foundational to Christian living is the certainty it brings to every Christian regarding the assurance of final salvation. Romans 6 sends a message to every believer in Christ that their salvation will be preserved and thus they will persevere to the very end. No true child of God will be finally and fatally lost. This means that despite how difficult and trying our sanctification may be, God will keep us to the very end. And one of the great statements in Romans 6 which speaks directly to this issue is in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This declaration falls on the immediate heels of two great imperatives communicated in verses 12 and 13. The first imperative calls us to oppose sin. This is spelled out in verse 12 and in the beginning of verse 13. Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Based on this passage, our opposition to sin is an ongoing war fought within the members of our mortal bodies while where remaining sin is ever trying us and tempting us to enlist our bodily members as weapons of wickedness. We are thus commanded by God to resist sin and oppose it at every turn. But while we're opposing sin, we're also commanded here to be serving God. This is what the rest of verse 13 impresses on every Christian. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The kernel truth of this imperative is that we as Christians are to give ourselves to God's absolute disposal. The whole of who we are and all that we have is devoted to God's will to serve the Lord in whatever way pleases Him. This is the essence of what it means to live the Christian life. On the one hand, we pursue holiness, and thus we're opposing sin. On the other hand, we pursue godliness, and thus we're serving God. In whatever way He chooses, because we're not our own, we belong to Him. However, in light of these imperatives, let me ask you this question. What guarantee do we have that our opposition to sin and service to God will last? How can we be so sure and certain that we will not ultimately defect from God and re-enter our former bondage to sin? Well, the answer to these troubling questions are summed up in Romans 6 and verse 14. Again, we read, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. At the closing of God's command to fight sin and serve Him, we're given in these words of Romans six fourteen a sweet, assuring promise regarding the stability and steadfastness of our sanctification. And in this promise, there are two important indicatives concerning both our relationship to sin and to God, which will be the focal point of our study this afternoon. As we consider very carefully the teaching of Romans 6.14, we will look first 
and our assurance for persevering in sanctification. And then second, we'll see our permanent position for the perseverance. So to begin with, let's consider first our assurance for persevering in sanctification. Look at me at the opening words here in Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Right from the start, we must understand two things about this statement. First, it is not an imperative. This is not a command where we're being told to actually do something. Second, this is not a promise of future reward pending our obedience to what we're commanded to do in verses 12 and 13. In other words, we must not take these words in verse 14 as either an exhortation or a consequence of what happens if we oppose sin and serve God. Rather, when we read, for sin will have no dominion over you, this must be understood as a statement of assured fact for the believer in Christ. An assurance that he can and will effectively oppose sin and serve God since sin will have no dominion over him. Moreover, this is God's word of assurance for his people that they will persevere in sanctification because they will never again be under the dominion of sin. But affirming this truth raises a question. What does it mean to be under the dominion of sin? One reason for this question is due to the reality that sin still remains in our mortal bodies as Christians and we still commit sin. So how then must we understand that sin will have no dominion over you? Again, what does it mean to be under the dominion of sin? The answer to this question takes us to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, where we're told that both Jews and Greeks, which is shorthand for everybody in the world, are under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. To be under sin is to be under sin's power, to be under sin's rule, and thus its dominion. But the kind of people described as under sin's dominion in Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18 are not believers, but unbelievers. They are in rebellion to God's law, blind to the things of God, with no inclination to seek God in a saving way and full of corruption on a path of sinful misconduct. This is a person under the dominion of sin, but this is not a Christian. A Christian has died to the old way of life under the enslaving power of sin is clearly communicated in Romans chapter 6. A Christian no longer lives under sin's tyranny or even in sin's territory. Furthermore, what he was in Adam as a lost condemned sinner has also died. As we're told in Romans 6 and verse 6, the old self or the old man is dead, crucified with Christ. And as the scripture tells us, a new creation, a new creation has been born joined in spiritual union with Christ. Based on these gospel facts, 
these indicatives, it, is it any wonder that we're given such strong assurance in verse 14 of Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you. This promise is the staying power of our encouragement as Christians. Sin has lost its rule over every believer in Christ. It may fight to regain control, but it will not prevail. United to Christ, under the reign of His redeeming grace, this is where every believer now lives. Observing this fact, John Murray wrote in his classic book on biblical ethics, his book called Principles of Conduct. Listen to this observation that Murray gives us. Sin does not rule in the believer. To think so is to deny the lordship which belongs to Christ by reason of his death and resurrection. And just as the deliverance from the power of sin is decisive, so it is inclusive. If the believer were under the dominion of any sin, then the truth of the proposition, sin shall not have dominion over you, would be abrogated. The deliverance in view must therefore apply to all sin, and the inescapable inference is that the sin which still resides in the believer and the sin he commits does not have the dominion over him. Sin as indwelling and committed is a reality. It does not lose its character as sin. It is the contradiction of God and of that which a believer most characteristically is. It creates the gravest liabilities. But by the grace of God, there is this radical change that it does not exercise the dominion. Now, every Christian should take in deeply those last quoted words of John Murray. But by the grace of God, there is this radical change that sin does not exercise the dominion. This is what we must hold on to when facing the remaining force of indwelling sin. Sin's rule, sin's reign, sin's power has been forever broken. It has been eternally breached for the believer in Christ. We are no longer the slaves of sin. For sin will have no dominion over you. This is our assurance for perseverance in sanctification. But in addition to this indicative regarding our relationship to sin, Romans 6.14 goes on to express another very important reality which aids us as we oppose sin and serve God. It is our permanent position for the perseverance. Reading the latter half of Romans 6.14. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Since you are not under law, but under grace. The reason sin will not have dominion over us is because we're not under law, but under grace. Well, what does that mean? These, these words are expressing a definite and permanent position that is true of every Christian. A Christian is not under law but under grace. But what are the implications of this position? Well, to begin with, let's consider the truth that we're not under law. 
At the outset of this statement, we must clear away a popular misconception surrounding these words, which is advocated by the aforementioned belief called antinomianism. For the antinomian, they take this indicative to mean that Christians have nothing more to do with God's law. It's, it's a very convenient text of Scripture for practical antinomians to stake their claim for a lawless Christianity. Since we're told very plainly here, as they would say, we're not under law. So how then do we answer this? First of all, God's Word nowhere teaches that a Christian is finished altogether with God's law now that he is saved. We've been listening to a lot about that since this conference started. While it is true that we are no longer under the curse and condemnation of the law, and even further, the ceremonial and judicial laws God gave to the people of Israel via the Old Covenant have been done away with by the coming of Christ and thus no longer bind believers in the New Covenant with the only exception connected with judicial laws that agree with God's moral law. So then, even with this fact of what we could call partial freedom from the law, we have not been liberated from the moral mandate of the law, namely to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These two commands sum up the whole of God's moral law, which we have in the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, these two commands, to love God and our neighbor, are the righteous requirement of the law, which by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we as believers have the desire, power, and responsibility to fulfill. As indicated clearly by Romans 7.22, where Paul confesses his delight, his delight in God's law from his inner being. Or in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, where the Holy Spirit enables us to carry out the righteous demands of God's law. And then there is Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, where God's moral law is not abrogated for the Christian, but fulfilled by love to our neighbor, and then, of course, to God. But in addition to this, we also see how the Christian is not finished completely with God's law by the fact that in the new covenant, it is promised by God that to those who belong to this covenant, which would be all believers in Christ, God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The law referred to here is obviously the moral law, that is, the Ten Commandments, since that is the only division of God's law which God wrote with His own finger according to Exodus 31 and verse 18. Moreover, it is only the Ten Commandments, as Jim Renahan has rightly stated, that rest on God's moral nature and reflect His perfection. Only the Ten Commandments. But the first inscription of the moral law was on tablets of stone, whereas in the new covenant, different than the old covenant, God will write his moral law on the hearts of his people. And such a work of God is what takes place when we are born again and receive a new heart in the new birth. The bottom line is this. The Christian life is not a life of lawlessness. 
Salvation by grace alone has not canceled obedience to the law. Rather, it has enabled us with the freedom to obey God in response to His moral law. And to deny this is to deny a true and saving identification with Christ. As 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says quite bluntly, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So then, what does it mean to be under law? It means to be not under the curse and condemnation of the law. Since all the law can do by itself is to confirm us in our sinful bondage and judge us for this bondage. The law demands perfect obedience to God, which it has no power to give, but can only declare and approve. A person under law, therefore, is someone who is enslaved to the power of sin because they have no power either in themselves to be free from sin or in the law to acquire that freedom. Yet for the Christian, the law no longer stands over him pronouncing judgment, but rather the law pronounces approval because he is in Christ who fulfilled all that the law required and has imputed his perfect obedience to the believer, which takes the believer out of condemnation and places him under grace. And saying this brings us to consider now what it means to be under grace. So what then are the implications of this position for the believer in Christ? Well, the answer to this question is actually a summation of everything the Apostle Paul has written from Romans 3.21 to the first half of where we are now in Romans 6. This means, therefore, that to be under grace is to be in a position before God where He has justified us on account of all that Christ has done to save us and bring us to God. We were also now in God's favor, at peace with God and reconciled to Him. Furthermore, to be under grace is to be in a position where we're no longer in Adam, but we're now in Christ. Thus, we're no longer classified as sinners, but are now classified as saints. Moreover, since we're under grace, we have died to our old life in Adam, having been enslaved to the power of sin. Under grace has further placed us all in spiritual union with Christ. Henceforth, we have a new life to live under grace, which opposes sin and serves God. All these gospel facts confirm us as a people under grace. But in light of these facts, let me ask you, are you someone who lives under grace. Do you have the blessed assurance of being declared by God as righteous in His sight on account of Christ? 
Do you have the assurance of God's favor and acceptance of you because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been transferred to your account through faith in him? And are you at peace with God through faith in Christ? Are you reconciled to him, having received his forgiveness of all your sins due to the work of Christ on the cross? Do you know yourself as someone who has been united to Christ in spiritual union with him? You are in Christ. You are no longer in Adam. Is this true of you? Or to ask this another way, according to Romans 6 and verse 11, are you dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Has the reign, the rule, the power of sin been canceled in your life because you are now a new creation in Christ? And is your life a life that is opposing sin and serving God? Again, are you someone who lives under grace? Or are you someone who lives under law? Are you trusting in your righteousness to merit the favor of God? Are you looking to your works as the basis for God's acceptance? Do you think that what you can do is good enough for God, yet all the while you are a slave of sin, serving your own passions and desires with no thought for God's glory as the aim and end and goal of everything that you are and do? Is this what's really true of you? You're not looking to Christ. You're not trusting in Christ alone to put you right with God because you're really trusting in yourself. A condemned, cursed sinner in Adam with no hope because you live under law enslaved to sin. Is this who you are? Is this where you live? Beloved, listen to this. You're either under law or under grace. It cannot be both. There's no straddling the fence. There is no neutral ground here either. Under law or under grace. Which is it? Where do you stand? Where do you live? May God give you the understanding to know where you are as a person who is either under law or under grace. And if you are under law, then I plead with you right here, right now, turn to Christ. You say, but wait a minute. I'm at the Deep South Founders Conference. So what? So what? If you're someone under law, if that is a conviction that has just smited your conscience, then run to Christ. 
Close with Christ. Trust in Him for your salvation. Right here, right now. Run to Him by faith. Flee from the destruction your life is indeed in if you are under law. Because again, as I said, and this, this is across, this is across the plane of all humanity. You're either under law or under grace. Get that settled today. Get it settled now. That is the call of the gospel. That is the urgency that the gospel impresses on every sinner everywhere. May God give us the grace to have the ears to hear and to answer this call. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the exceeding good news that is the gospel of Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for the directness, the simplicity, the call of the gospel. And Father, we pray that if there are any here in this sanctuary, here at the Deep South Founders Conference, someone who has come, who has entered into this conference, but yet they are someone under law and not under grace. They are someone who is indeed without Christ. We earnestly pray. Lord, have mercy upon them. Visit them in your saving power. Call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. Draw them, we pray, effectually to Christ Jesus our Lord. May this be the moment where they truly close with Christ. May you open their eyes to see this great and awesome need if they have never seen it before. And Lord, we pray that for those of us who are under grace, for those of us who are your people, Father, may there be a greater work of assuring grace in our hearts, assuring us of the salvation that we do truly have in Christ, that with what we've heard today from your word, may those great gospel indicatives, may they become more and more true to our hearts, to our consciences, building in us even greater categories of what is assuring faith. Thank you, Father, for your tender mercies 
that drew us to Christ, that has delivered us and set us free from the enslaving power of sin and has freed us from the condemnation and curse of the law. We thank you that we are as in Christ under grace. For all these things, we give you thanks for Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.